When is it time to abandon the system? And then what does that look like? You know, is it just tweaking the system? Is it is it going be where the system stops, you carry on? Is it adopting an entirely new system because the one you're working with isn't working? You know, these are the these are the things you're going to have to answer. This is the artistry of it. Yeah. And I think artistry is one of those things where, you know, people shy away from it because artistry doesn't it's not about offering certainty. Mm-hmm. It's more about offering curiosity. It's more about offering wonder. It's options. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's not so much about getting to the solution, but it's offering a solution, yeah. a potential solution. This is Way of the Artist with Brandon Colby Cook and Evan Schulte, identifying your blocks and demystifying your struggles so that you can claim your own path and make your life a work of art. Fight the system, man. The system's broken, man. You gotta... (laughs) I couldn't help myself on that one. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Way of the Artist podcast once again, where we're talking about living life with the philosophy of the artist, as it were. And we've got uh, a really, really cool one today, or what I think is going to be a cool one. And this one's all about systems. In fact, what did we uh, what did we call this one? The time to abandon the system. So, what are we talking about here? We're talking about, as we've said many times already, or I've said, you haven't said anything yet. Systems, approaches, methods, methodologies. You know th- these different kinds of structures that we create in order to facilitate some kind of an outcome or to create some kind of order in all kinds of different functions and aspects of our lives. We create systems. We need systems. They're a valuable thing. But there is what we've been talking about is where do systems fail? And what are systems very good at? And what are they not so good at? Because it's something that I don't think is explored a lot. Yeah, and I think to even take that a little further, where does the system help you and where does it actually hinder you mm-hmm. is really what we want to talk about here because I think systems are a great beginning. They're a great part. Uh, they're kind of a thing you can start with. They can set a foundation for you. But at the end of the system when you reach when you actually figure out the system it's not a it's not an end point it's not like a it, it's it only it's only a launch point and yeah. i think that's where a lot of people kind of end up shooting themselves in the foot is they rely too much on the system and they don't want to go beyond the system and you know you mentioned earlier before the call is that a good system has room for improvi- improvisation yeah. room for you know, adaptation, room for change. And I think really where a system works is a system takes a certain amount of stuff that can be known or, and I want to put known as in quotation marks, Yeah. but it takes a certain amount of things that kind of work, puts them yeah. together, puts them in place, gives you kind of a way in which you can use them. 
but it takes you to the point of the unknown. And that's where the artist picks up the slack. That's where you begin to venture beyond the system and take it to where the system doesn't even know yet. Because systems are, I mean, I think the illusion is that a system has all the answers. A system has some of the answers and many more it needs to improve upon the system. So if you're working from any methodology or any system or anything like that, really what you're doing is you're using that to launch. But once you get into actual the artistry of it, then your actual doing of your artistry is what's going to further expand the system, improve the system and make it better. And others will follow in your footsteps, but your footsteps will not be the completion point either. It it always goes further. It always adapts. It always changes. Yeah. So as you said, like, uh, a good system is one that has room that leaves room for change, for improvisation, for something unexpected to occur. And in fact, I would say that that is when a system is functioning at its best. Yes. You know, I think uh, I brought this up before, but there was, and again, I can't remember who it was, but it was a Nobel prize winning chemist. So we're talking about a scientist here who is coming up with all kinds of new, new things but he saw what he was doing as laying the foundation for something spontaneous to occur. And when I came across this quote, it was actually in an, in an acting book. So there's these really beautiful, we think of science so much in terms of systems and rules and precise calculations. But as far as exploring new frontiers, making new discoveries, it means you've got to buck the system at some point. Mm-hmm. You've got to, so a good one is one that has inherently built into it room for something to happen. And again, I'll reiterate is that in many ways is, should be what a system is for, is for something new and unexpected to come out of it as a result. In many ways, this is the best use of a system because how we create these things, how we create these different methodologies and, and processes. Is that how you say it? Processes, processes. I think it's one of the, I'm not going to get into it. <laughs> how we come up with these things is based on observation, based on experience and observation. But that keeps, that keeps it implicitly rooted in the past. Mm-hmm. Because we only know what's come before. So we can definitely extract and learn a lot from that. But when it comes to making new discoveries and to having our eyes open to something unexpected, we can't constantly be looking back at the system. We have to be looking at what's happening right in front of us. And this is part of where systems break down. You know, and when people kind of lose their minds a little bit when something doesn't work out or, or come out as they thought it was supposed to is because at some point a system breaks down because it can only respond to the past. That's how it was created from its outset. Mm -hmm. It was as a response to the past. So it can't necessarily always uh, factor in and account for things that have yet to occur and have yet to come. Yeah. And I think a system is, a system is good at replicating something that's already been done. Like uh, often that's why it's in, in place. But the thing is that the results 
of what's already been done might not be as valuable the next time. Mm -hmm. So for example, a good example of this is like one actor um, does something and then someone else bases a system or let's say screenwriter or filmmaker, it doesn't really matter, painter. But the um, one person does it, another person extracts the system and how they did it, replicates it, does it again, gets a very similar result. The problem is, is that the second result is not as valuable as the first time it was done. And that's the thing about art is that art is most valuable initially. And and then once it gets replicated and copied, it it devalues. So for the artists out there or the people trying to be inventors or create something new, a system can only get you to replicate a past result. It doesn't necessarily help you to create a new one. And that's where, you know, things like the law of the unknown, which we've talked about, the law of presence and the law of process kind of really come in where you take uh, a system to a certain point and then you let your artistry kind of take place. Yeah. You know, I'll share something. When I first started teaching screenwriting, it was before I ever started a school. It was just people would come to me and they'd be like, Brandon, teach me how to write a script. I'll hire you. And I would basically just be like teaching kind one mentor. Yeah. yeah. And it wasn't a system. It wasn't a business, anything like that. You know, now I've literally put together a screenwriting system, but let me get into that in a second. Yeah. So when I first started teaching people to write scripts, I had read, I don't know, like countless amounts of books. I, I don't even know. Like you've seen my library. Yeah. It's just stacked, right? With And I just wanted to read every single book I could on screenwriting so I could start to see what the system is and start to see the differing views of all these writers. And what I would tell people in the beginning was, look, you got to understand the rules of screenwriting. You got to understand the systems and the things in place. Once you get that, once you do that, we can go and we can change that as much as we want. But the thing is, is that you have to understand what you're changing. Like Mm -hmm. if you go and try and write an original screenplay, but you don't even understand the countless scripts that have been written based on a certain process, a certain system, it might work. I'm not saying it won't, but the chances are it won't. And you won't know why it won't because you don't know what you broke, what rule you broke. Yeah. And I would always tell writers, you can break just about any rule. You can break this whole system, but if you don't know that you're breaking it and you don't know how you're breaking it, then you're not going to know what's going to work. And right. I, and I'll also point out that a lot of the time we can break, say one part of the system, we can break one rule, but once we start breaking two or three or four, we're often going to run into trouble because there are certain things that help that rule be in place. And then you can break that rule so long as these other things are in place. So this is where the system becomes, you can become creative with the system where you start to go, okay, I can do this, this, and this based on the system, but this part of the system, if I change it, what happens? And I find that writing like screenwriting, for example, becomes a bit of an experiment. You go, well, what if I change this one thing? What will happen? Yeah. And, and that can kind of work and it can not work, but you end up discovering something. Yeah. And here's the other thing I'll just say, just to finish this point, many writers have done this already. So it, it, it's in your best interest, I think in probably any art, but I'll just focus on screenwriting because I know yeah. it best, is that if you start to look at how other filmmakers and screenwriters in the past have broken the system and tried it and see if it worked for them because sometimes a writer can think they're doing something new and it's like no no like Orson Welles already did that like yeah. it's not like Tarantino yeah. did this it's not like that is new now just because it's not a part of the system like 
that's commonly written. Yeah. Someone already did it. So it still is common. So, you know, that's where starting to learn about how past people did the system and bent it helps you as well. Yeah. And interestingly enough, when those bends occur, it kind of becomes an, an evolution of the system. Exactly. We're like, oh, wow, there's there's more room to play. There's more room to, to create in here. And I think that's a, a huge part of it is is not to be bound by systems. Like, because there is a certain um, practicality and to having some of these things in place, to having a knowledge of how some of these things work, right? But I think the so often the tendency is for us to just hang on to these things because they give us a sense of control. Like we can force some kind of an outcome. And the thing is like, that's not what a system is for. It's not about guaranteeing outcomes. Well, it's, not, not in art. No, not in art, but I would say, I would, or I would argue, yeah, any, any creative endeavor. And that goes beyond the arts. Like creativity is, is something that, that is, in all facets of life. And so whenever you come across uh, a system, for me, it's looking at these things as not so as rules and laws, and this is the way that it is. These are tendencies. So a good script tends to be good when you have a good dilemma in it. It tends to be good when you have a character who goes through some kind of transformation from the beginning to the end. It tends to be, but the thing is, is that that's not always the rule. You look at something like Back to the Future. Right. Like, great example. That's a character, like that broke all kinds of stuff. And in fact, Marty McFly is a character who doesn't really have an arc. Yeah. He's just kind of like, flying through this thing by the seat of his pants. He's just sort of a a vessel for us to experience all of this stuff occurring, but he doesn't really change from the beginning to the end, which some people be like, that's a, that's a rule in in screenwriting. Right. Well, apparently not (laughs) because this is an iconic movie. One of the most iconic movies of all time. Yeah. And I think like, you know, when you look at something like back to the future is such a great example because it's a commercial hit. It's, you know, some people might not like it. I I don't know who they are. (laughs) They're probably out there. But for the most part, you can say like, it is a very entertaining film, um, commercial hit. It, it, it does a lot. It, it, it seems to be a complete story, Mm -hmm. but it's very incomplete. And this is where, you know, the system can kind of be abandoned. And I think for other values, like, because in say uh, some movies, the character arc is, is vital. Without yeah. the character arc, the story just will not work. Yeah. But in a story like that, which is more about, it's kind of about the sci-fi element, the the fascination of like, well, how does the past, if we changed it, affect the future? That's mm-hmm. more interesting than the actual character journey of like who yeah. Marty McFly is as a person. Yeah. But like the arc in some ways you could say is really just about like, how does the past affect the future and how does that change? Because yeah. we don't really care so much about the character change. We care about the event change in the story. Yeah. Right. And the events. And and so it's enough. Mm-hmm. So you, here, let me, let me share one other thing just to kind of accompany this. I study a lot of psychology in university. That was a big thing for me. Psychology is a science. Some people disagree, but it is a science. Mm-hmm. We, we use the same, things that any scientist would do. Um, you know, you have a hypothesis, you go through a process, an experimental process, all of this. Well, when you're, when you're running an experiment, 
you you want to learn what other people have already done. You want to actually have a good understanding yeah. of the many other experiments that have been done in the type of thing you're trying to do mm-hmm. so that you not only can reference them to help further your point and and yeah. kind of make sense why you would even do that experiment but once you figure out what's already been done you can actually figure out what you could actually prove that's new mm-hmm. and when you're making a hypothesis that's new you don't know if your hypothesis is correct you're doing the experiment to find out if you're correct the the interesting thing that i discovered about science when i when i you know and when i was learning it was really that sometimes you have a hypothesis and you end up proving something else entirely that you didn't even expect or yeah. know would come out of your experiment so you have to be open minded enough to see that because yeah. if you're only looking for your hypothesis you might miss the fact that you actually stumbled upon something really cool but yeah. you just was unforeseen. And then you might actually need to run another experiment to be like, oh, look at that. We discovered this. Let's actually focus the experiment this time on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And some of the greatest scientific discoveries have been discovered by people who had no knowledge of, of something else. A lot of times the, the big, huge evolutions occur in unexpected ways from people you wouldn't expect because they just they're not within the system to a degree. They're not as influenced by the system. They're not as conditioned by the way things have been done. And so they can see something with fresh eyes. Because I think that the greatest scientists of of human history have been extraordinarily creative people. Because you have to. I was listening to uh, another podcast. uh, I think it was with uh, Eric Weinstein was on it. Eric Weinstein and, and Sam Harris. And he's a mathematician. Uh, I don't know what else he's uh, math. Math is his main thing, but he's, is like, he's one one of these smart guys who's just uh, like been educated in so many different fields. Yeah. But he says for himself, like when he's coming up with a, a new type of hypothesis or trying to understand something that we don't understand yet, going into the unknown territory. Well, I mean, he's a scientist and he has, a kind of a, a, a method and an approach to it, but he has to, I think he, he kind of put it like, I have to substitute some level of faith in order to discover something new, because I don't necessarily know based on the data, what I'm looking for. The data won't show me what I'm looking for. For him, he's just like, there's got to be some kind of an inclination about something that then the data has to he has to come in and support afterwards. So you have to kind of substitute a creative element into a hypothesis at some point in order to actually, you know, move the boundary, move the borders, discover what the next thing is. Hmm. Because, again, the past data won't necessarily always tell you what that thing is going to be. It might inform or point to a certain direction to go and look at. And some of those things are going to be dead ends. But there's going to be other other ways that still demand. It always demands a, a kind of creative input that a system will not give you. Hmm. 
You know, um, so I'm going to go back to screenwriting for a second. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a real interesting period of time when movies were being made. It was in the 80s and the 90s. And we all are familiar with 80s movies. I mean, especially our generation. But like, <laughs> you know, but these 80s movies and these 90s movies that they were commercial successes. They worked. They um, but they have a certain kind of style to them. Like it's like, yeah. oh, that's an 80s movie, which is so much different than a 1940s, 1960s type of movie or a current modern day movie. Mm-hmm. They're this weird. It's this weird little window of time. And I have a I have an a hypothesis as to why this is. All right. So during the 80s and the 90s was essentially the cinema boom. It was um, where basically anybody and their dog could write a script and everybody thought they had a great movie idea Hmm. and studios were buying up scripts like if you were a screenwriter in the 80s like you you could really flourish because if you got connected with the right people and you went to the right parties and you're involved you could have a career and you might never even got a movie made but you could have a real illustrious career yeah because it was a time where studios were buying movies so there was this whole boom in the business of the film industry right and so what was happening was you had all these people coming onto the scene who didn't necessarily have screenwriting knowledge right there was no there wasn't really a lot of books written then like there were books but it wasn't really like it is now like all those yeah. people from the 80s and 90s are a lot of the books we read today right. because they figured it out by doing it. And then they started sharing, oh, there's a system to this. We started figuring yeah. out there's actually like a like a like more of a structure and a character arc. And this is the thing that studios started to want. And yeah. so those are a lot of the books we read today. So when people are writing these scripts, they didn't have that stuff. They didn't have character arc. Some of them didn't even really have a good three act structure. You know, some of them, they just, they did weird things, but it was a very interesting time. So the reason why a lot of these movies are interesting is because it was, um, you know, in a big way, it was, it was the rise of the movie star and the rise of the spec script. And you put those two together and it created a very interesting time in cinema history. Mm. So the point is, is that, um, you can have, uh, things kind of happen in a very like spontaneous way. But now what happens in, in our day, if you want to be a writer today, we have a very much, a very systematized system of writing. Now mm-hmm. there's a five act structure in movies or seven act structure. Commercial breaks are planned for the arc of a movie, the, the yeah. page number of a script these things are so much more, there's so much more pressure on them than there ever was before. So, so what's happened though, I think as a writer today, you need to, you need to understand the business side because that's what's causing the system to be in place, but have enough willingness to step outside of it and be creative. Because I think what a lot of writers are struggling with is they're just writing the same thing that everyone else is writing yeah. over and over and over again and because they're all based on the same books. Yeah, they're all working with the same system. Yes. And now everybody's tired of seeing the same movie because they all kind of move and flow in the same sort of pattern. We're like, oh, we've kind of seen this before and we get really comfortable with it. And then usually someone puts something out there that's suddenly just like, whoa, like unexpected. Yeah. And does something that we... that is not normal. 
Right. But they do it in an effective way. And then everybody starting, starts to copy that. Right. Right. And it's, it's a kind of evolution of the system to, to a degree, but it has to be, there has to be an, an openness and willingness to buck the system in order to create something new. Right. You know, and, and also in order for you, for you to have an authentic voice in the whole thing, mm-hmm. you know, because you could have uh, an absolutely extraordinary idea that's an, an absolute game changer. But if you're attached to doing things by the system and by the book, then you might squash that idea and then go for something that's not as, as that wasn't as profound as that thing. And then now nobody gives a shit about it because it's like, yeah, yeah, I saw this yesterday (laughs) or last week or whatever it is. Right. You know, there's things that on paper will work and there's things in reality that, that on paper they work, but they just don't work in reality. Yeah. And for some reason or another. Yeah. And I think, you know, for anybody who's out there as an artist, you know, you don't, if, if you're struggling with your art in whatever medium you are, have it be acting, filmmaking, writing, painting, music, whatever it is, try to look at, are you, are you doing what works on paper? Mm-hmm. Because that's a, that's a good place to just look is like, but it's not working. Like the thing is, is you're like, I'm doing every, this should work. And it's not, that's when you kind of need to look at like, okay, maybe it's time to abandon the system. You know, that's when you want to start considering that because here's the thing. I think the system can take you to a certain point where it's not where you can start to think it's your fault because you think, oh, I'm doing everything right. It should be working. Yeah. But that's where you need to step in. Actually, it's taken you as far as the system can take you. And now you, we need to see you. We need to see your voice, your creativity, your originality. So I think we're a lot of artists and I just see this all over the place. I think, and including myself is like, you're like, I'm doing everything right. I'm doing everything I'm supposed to be doing. Why isn't this working? That's because the system takes you to a certain point and then it lets you, it basically says, okay, you got that down. Now let's see you. But like, if you don't even have the system, you might not even be in the game. So for these like really highly trained actors, highly trained screenwriters, people who have gone through film school, whatever, it's brought you to the point where you are allowed to be in the arena. But mm-hmm. once you're in the arena, it's up to you now to step out on your own and be original and be interesting. And yeah. not for the sake of being interesting either, yeah. but for the sake of curiosity, for the sake of expression. For the sake of bringing your voice to the table, which has yeah. never been written down yet until you write it down. Yeah. More literally for those screenwriters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And this is for, I mean, art, artistic mediums just work so well for this. And, and from my own experiences is that was my frustration so much in my early years as an actor. And I love that you brought up this thing of I'm doing everything right. If you are at that stage of frustration with whatever it is that you're up to in your life and you're going, I'm doing everything right. Why is this not working? Well, that's, that's such a great spot to be at, to recognize that, well, this is as far as the system is going to get you. The rest is what you're bringing to this. And for myself, as an, as an actor, 
early on, I was very frustrated not getting the kind of results that I wanted in my, in my acting in that I was, I guess, searching out for that losing myself experience that is so often cited among actors. I want to lose myself (laughs) in this, in this thing. And was just continually frustrated. I was taking so many classes and I was reading all of the books that my teachers were telling me to do. And I was, had this system (laughs) of, of doing it. And my acting was, was, was good. It was fine. Yeah. And, but it was always just such a, for myself, it was such a hit and miss experience for me. And I even had one teacher as far as go as far as saying to me, I have nothing to teach you technically. Like there's nothing I have to tell you. <laughs> like it, it was, so then it became more of an exploration. That was maybe one of the first moments when I, when I began to explore something outside of everything that I had learned up to that point mm-hmm. and that there was a value in that. And I think that this is, this is a vital component of this because we hang on to our systems as some kind of hoping it's going to be some kind of a guarantee for ourselves, but it can never be that kind of guarantee. And ultimately we're being asked that we have to bring ourselves to what we're doing in a new way. And in a way that might be kind of scary, Mm -hmm. you know, because what if people reject that? What if people don't like it? What if, what if I don't even really know who I am and what I bring to this, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and what's I, or I don't see what's interesting about me at all. You know, these are things that kind of come, come out. And those are in many ways more uh, frightening questions and challenges than continually coming up against the walls of, of the system that is now confining you. Yeah. And just being frustrated by that because, you know, we're comfortable with that struggle, (laughs) but suddenly it's just like, Oh wow, I've got to, I've got to show up in a new way. I've got to start to have a new level of connection and relationship with myself and my own creative thought and, and being. And the thing is, is it can be an intimidating thing, but it's ultimately the most rewarding aspect once you really dive into it. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to, I want to say, I mentioned this before when we were leading up to this conversation before the podcast began, but I was talking about how, you know, in my experience, people don't know what they like and what they want until they experience it. And also not even until they experience it, but until it's like owned in front of them. Mm-hmm. You know, there's lots of times in my life where, you know, I don't know, maybe like just funny little things. Like here's a weird example, growing up facial hair in a certain way, <laughs> or just growing up facial hair, period. Yeah. And people are like, wow, you grew a beard or well, whatever or you grew your hair long, or you cut your hair or something like this. And they're like, I don't like it or, or, but that's weird. But then you just kind of wear it and you do it and you own it. And all of a sudden they kind of start to like it. And then if you ever change it and cut off, they're like, Oh, I kind of like the beard, you know, Mm -hmm. I kind of like the thing. But that's the thing is that 
you got to not make your decisions based on the feedback a lot of the time people are giving you about their kind of very like fleeting uh, approval, disapproval of what you're doing. So when it comes to your artistry, like, you know, you might think like someone might give you feedback on a script or you're acting and they might say like, oh, I don't really like that or you need to do this. You got to really like, and I don't know how you do this necessarily. I don't know if I can give you a system, <laughs> <laughs> but you got to figure out in yourself, is this authentic and is this true to me? Because if it's true to you, I think what you'll end up finding out is that the authority figures or the people even just the, the look you lose, the people who are watching you do life, they don't have, they don't know. Mm-hmm. And often, here's the funny thing for any artist, often what is new is disliked at first. Mm. Just because it's new and different, it doesn't mean that it's not good. It's just not, They it just hasn't, people haven't seen it. So like there's a, there, okay, there's this familiarity thing, right? So they say yeah. that, um, because you, you always will recognize your mother's voice for, forever. You'll always know it the moment you hear it. Right. And the reason why is because when you're infant and you're in her belly, you were hearing her voice. And mm. so that voice is like hard line streamed through your body. Mm. So there's these things in our life that we're so familiar with that anything different doesn't seem right at first. So the thing is, is I think with creativity and originality and newness is that we need to understand that the feedback we get about creativity is not accurate often. It's, it's often (laughs) very inaccurate. So, so like to try something new, to do something original, you need to really not take it personally and take a lot of pressure on yourself off of yourself as far as like, do, will people like it? Will they like me? My advice is this, and I give this to myself as much as I give this to anybody else. If you're coming from a place of truth and authenticity, own that shit. Just own it. Just own it. And, and watch if you don't waver, if you stay true, if it has to be authentic, it can't be put on. Mm-hmm. If it's coming from your heart, people will embrace it. It may not happen immediately, but you just got to be like, no, I know in my heart, this is right. Just watch. If you stay steadfast with it, people will come around. And I think this is a very, very important. This is maybe one of the most important things I can share to an artist is if you come from authenticity, your authenticity is not based on other people's opinions. It's based on your connection to you. So if you know in your heart, there's a truth coming forward, whether people like it or not, don't let that waver you. Mm -hmm. Stay with that. See where that brings you. People will get on board with that, but you got to own it. It's when you waver and you start to like accommodate other people's opinions of you. That's when you get thrown off. But look, if you keep accommodating everybody, you'll never do anything original. Yeah. And you, in some ways that will kill your, your potential. Yeah. Because people don't want that ultimately. And that's not what works. Art is about, you know, the art and the creativity is about something new and new is scary. New is in the unknown. Yeah. And, and I think this is where a lot of us struggle, right? Is that we, we do something different. People have never seen and they go, I don't like it. And we go, Oh, I guess I better not do it. And we just stop. Yeah. But if you're on to something and you're coming from a place of truth and you know, you've never done it before, it's new to you. It's a new experience. 
Yeah. You know, run with it a little, try it out. Don't just let the first few people that say they don't like it be the things that deter you from it. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me think of a story that Jack White, uh, okay. Tells in the movie. I think it was from it. It might get loud or maybe, I, I don't know. It was some interview I saw of Jack White Okay, and he was uh, doing a sound check before, a, before a show and he was playing around with, with this little guitar riff and so a friend who was, who was with him, I guess on the tour with him or something. And he played, it was like, Hey man, check this out. Like, and so he, he plays this for him. He's like, he's like, what do you think? What do you think about it? And his friend goes, I don't know. Like, I don't think it's like, <laughs> I don't think it's your best or whatever sentiment he gave him, but basically just kind of shot him down. Yeah. And he went, I don't know, man. I think, I think there's, there's, there's something to this. And that song was Seven Nation Army. (laughs) Right? Like, it's like Seven Nation Army is... It's not even exaggeration. It's an anthem. Yeah, totally. Seven Nation Army isn't just a song. It's a fucking anthem. They play that in arenas to get people fired up. Like, it's, it's... it's something that's transcended just a song. Yeah. You know, like it's something that just is, there's something primal about it. There's something that just, but had he listened to his friend, he might've just never pursued it. And we'd never have seven nation army. Right. That's crazy. And you know, and that's just because it was something that was maybe a little, just too different, a little bit outside of the system. Right. Or, or, or they're a friend, just to, may- just to bring this back. In. Totally. Or maybe it seems so simple that there was nothing to it. That can happen too. You know, yes. artistry is yeah. such a funny thing because sometimes we think it needs to be this big, complicated thing. Sometimes the simplest things are the most friggin' profound, man. Yeah. It's like, and if you think about that seven Eighth nation army, right? It's, it's relatively pretty simple. Dun, yeah. Dun, 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 dun. Uh, right it's like that's yeah. not too complicated but sometimes simple things they, they just hit the heart you know they they hit yeah. the soul they hit the backbone whatever you want to call it like it's just in there and like you know you see this with acting sometimes you know for those actors out there you know I've, I, I, a lot of young actors they're always trying to they're trying to do something they're trying to you know keep upping their performance mm-hmm. sometimes it's so simple it's just you just look at the person and you look at them in this way where whatever's inside of you, you, you don't even do anything. You just trust that the, like that, the curiosity, like how, like, for example, how could you be saying what you're saying to me right now? Like, that's the line, whatever the line is, they're saying something. And you're just thinking to yourself, like the gall for you to say this to me right now for you. and, And you just have that thought that can be a moment where it's just so captivating and mm-hmm. it, and all that's happening on the physical realm is you're just looking at the person but behind your eyes there's this whole thing about about you thinking and i'm just giving you an ex- a, yeah, yeah. example you're just thinking how in the world could you dare to say that to me right now mm-hmm. and in that moment you know it's that's, electric it's electric but but the thing with acting is like it's many many moments paired and, and, and on each other. And, and that's, that's just you. That's where the law of trust really comes in so much. Mm -hmm. It's where you just allow what's going on underneath 
to, to be so much. Here's another interesting thing. You just read the script that I wrote, right? Yeah. Uh, new draft. Well, um, one of my friends was giving me feedback on it and he, he had this interesting way of giving me feedback on it because he was pointing out like, okay, well there's this little spelling error that, and this thing could be tweaked or whatever. But he's like, I give things check marks, one check mark, two check mark or three check mark. And he's like, if it's three check marks, it sent literal shills, shrills down my spine. Like I was yeah. like, whatever. And he pointed out these parts where he was like one, two or three check marks. And I was blown away at what check marks were because they were yeah. some of the simplest shit. It was sometimes like, like one line was it's be, it's because you cared. That's why it hurts. But it was just said at the right time in the right moment. And for him, he said, like, I, I, I had chills go down my spine because that it's just that hits so close to home. Yeah. So, but as a writer, I don't necessarily know to go like, oh yeah, I'll write this. This will be brilliant. Yeah. That for me was like, there was a moment. I remember writing the script because actually you had given me feedback on it. Like you were like, try doing this. And I went down my own sensibilities and I thought about losing my friends and I thought about the hard moments in my life. And I'm like, God, the moments that fucking hurt so bad were, be- were and often I thought I didn't care enough it was because I cared so much. Mm-hmm. And then you know, in a weird way, it comes out in this weird little bit of dialogue in an unsuspected way in the context of a scene. Because that, like someone could go, oh, I know, I'll write that line of dialogue in my script. Won't work. Yeah. You've got to understand the context of the whole scene in the whole movie because at that point it hits. Yeah. But here's the thing is the Where's artist it all coming from, right? Is the artist writing it? I didn't know that would do that. Mm-hmm. But what I've discovered is that the more truthful and authentic I am, the more I get those kind of, I'm going to call them, let's just say checkmark moments, mm-hmm. you know, as my friend, as he reviews a script, it's like, that's great. So it kind of, inspires me to go okay just keep going back to that internal source you don't understand it you don't know what it is exactly but let it come out yeah and and sometimes you might say a very simple or whatever thing but that's what that's what's gonna say you know and we actually talked before we we started recording about some of the laws that play into this and simplicity was one of them right that comes into it is keep the system simple because the more complex you make a system, you know, that you try and make it, I think that the, the more places it, that it has to break down yeah, the and more, completely fail. The more movable parts, the more a system usually breaks. Yeah. And yeah. it becomes very challenging right. to monitor how this whole thing, how this whole thing operates, you know, if not impossible, especially if you're just one person right. to, be, to try and maintain this whole thing. Where so simplicity in our systems is oftentimes the the wisest course of action because it's in that simplicity that we're also able to deviate a little bit more. It leaves a little bit more room. You know, there's no there's no little kind of offshoots of it and, and little things and conditions and whatever. It's just a nice, simple platform which is a way that I like to think of systems is that it needs to be a platform or a foundation, but you're the one who has to jump off of it. Mm -hmm. And that's really all it is. So there's this whole relationship that's going on there. And I just, I I love using some more of these artistic analogies. You know, it's like, there's people who try and 
you know, and I know some musicians and a lot of them, and I'm a bit of a musician myself, I'll, I'll go as far to say that, that, but the more complicated I try and make it, I'm usually just falling flat on my face, you know, as opposed to coming down to maybe a simple melody or or a simple idea of what a song is about and just building off of that. And then something really amazing can, can come out of it. Mm-hmm. And it's just why, you know, you can see some massive, you know, 10, 12 piece band do something that's just kind of, yeah, all right, whatever. And then you'll go and see some, some, some five foot, for a girl in a little cafe with just an acoustic guitar and and her voice and whatever's coming out from her is just ripping into your guts mm. and tearing you apart you know you're just like how is this happening right now <laughs> you know it's like it's three chords yeah. you know you're playing three freaking chords and singing a little song about heartbreak Mm -hmm. or something and it's just there's something so beautiful and profound because there's something so simple and honest about it yeah oh man there's so much stuff james dean is one of my uh one of my favorite actors um not because of how much he's been idolized but because just his raw truth that he would bring to cinema which was profound at the time in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. There's this moment, and I, I think it's in East of Eden, or it's Giant. Oh, I can't. Or maybe, maybe it's Rebel. No, I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't remember. It's one of his major three movies. He only did three movies, but they're fucking awesome. But there's this moment where he grabs his father. I'm pretty sure it's East of Eden. Anyway, he grabs his father. It wasn't scripted or anything. And they, like... The, the the actor who was working across from James Dean was very experienced, very mm-hmm. like, but he didn't even know what to do when James Dean like grabbed him and he was like, you're tearing me apart. And he's just mm. like holding his father and, you know, he's just like, and he didn't know what to do. And it just creates these moments mm. of like, you know, and I think, you know, being a son and, you know, and the relationship to a father and you know, and I, I know that not everybody can relate to this, but I think we can all tap into a little bit of that sense of like, you know, just looking for love from somebody and, and not getting it or not being understood. Mm-hmm. And when he, when James Dean like did that, you know, there's many, many moments I can refer to many moments, but there's these moments where he didn't, he abandoned the script. He abandoned the system Mm-hmm. And he let something inside of him allow a decision in action to take place. And yeah. fortunately, you know, and fortunately he was in, in an environment where they were willing to allow such freedom to occur. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like sometimes right now we, we we're in an environment where we're, people are very, very committed to systems and so as an artist, in some ways, you have to fight against the fact that some people are going to try and put you in a box. They're going to try and make it the way they think it should be. Mm-hmm. And that's when you need to have the wherewithal, the confidence, the ability to go like, no, I, this is my truth. This is my thing. And I think like 
there are working actors, working writers, working directors, and then there are creative, like fucking visionary directors, visionary writers, visionary actors. And if you want to move from working to visionary, you need to be willing to abandon the system. Because I think yeah. like, I think there's a lot of uh, actors and writers and directors and, and whatever, I'm sure other arts, I'm just not in them, but that, that do the working thing. And they, they learned how to make money. They learned how to get gigs. They learned how to do their thing. But nothing will really be stood out. Nothing will really be remembered. And I don't know if for them as artists that will be that fulfilling. Mm-hmm. But they figured out the system. They figured out how to do the things to make money to continually whatever. I think if you want to move into the visionary realm, you need to have a certain amount of like like where you trust yourself enough that you know the system is only going to take you so far that you're willing to go beyond it. And even if people are trying to pull you back and say like, no, no, go to the system, do what's already been known. You have the wherewithal to say, no, I'm going to push out into my own thing. You know, it's funny because the script that I've, that I've recently rewritten entirely, you read the earlier draft, mm-hmm. is the draft that everyone likes, the new one. But it was the one where I trusted my sensibilities and went like, okay, well, fucking like maybe this is imaginary. Like maybe things are not happening in reality, you know, and tried some stuff. Yeah. And that's where things got interesting. But, but had I not done that, we, you know, we would have still been stuck in the same, almost like we were getting caught in this weird, like movie of the week, kind of like blase script. Mm-hmm. And now it's actually starting to get into this point where it's like, okay, well we got some, some interesting thing here. And, you know, and that just was me. Like I, it was kind of like, I'd like to say it was because I just had the confidence to do it, but it was mostly just because I was like, I hit a point where I was like, this is not working. And I'm doing everything we're supposed to be doing. I'm trying mm-hmm. to do everything right. And I was kind of like, it, for lack of a better phrase, I was just like, fuck it. Let's try some stuff. Because yeah. I, I was out of options. I didn't, the system was failing me and I didn't know how to go forward. Yeah. And so I just was like, pull from your fucking heart, try some shit out. And it was yeah. a swing for the fences, honestly. Like I remember being up writing in the middle of the night being like, I don't know if this is fucking working. Systems (laughs) and methodologies will, will give you a functioning cliche. Yeah. Functioning cliche. That's a great way to put it. Like if, if you, if you don't deviate, if you just, if you only adhere to that, that's, that is ultimately what you get. Functioning. Great. Cliche. Not so much. So what you really want is a functioning original. Yes. Right? Is is and but the original is is a component that you have to bring by transcending the system. I think you know, I think you point out a really interesting thing here. The system gets you the functionability. You know, like with the screenplay, it creates order in some of like the chaos of all of the thoughts and ideas. And yeah, I mean like when people just go and they write a script and they're like, I don't care about the act structure or character arc or any of that. It often doesn't work. It might be totally original, but it doesn't work. There there is a function to things. There is a, there is a flow. There's a, you know, and, and we talk about this This is a part of our laws, the law of beginning, the law of completion to go from the law of beginning to the law of completion to have a process, the law of process mm-hmm. throughout the whole thing, 
there does need to be some pillars that yeah. hold things in place. And I think that's where the system serves us. But beyond those pillars, beyond the beginning and the end, that's where our voice, that's where our creativity comes in. And, yeah. you know, I, I think like if you're listening to this talk going like, oh, how am I going to hack this? It's not really about like, you can't really hack this. It's like, you just need to kind of go like, what do I need? Like, for example, if you're going to drive a car, you're like, okay, I need like four wheels or I need at least three. <laughs> you know what I mean? People have proven you can do yeah. it with three, right? But you're like, otherwise it becomes a balance issue. Or yeah. I need a paradigm kind of like a balance system that holds itself up, you know? But there's certain things that you that are needed for a certain thing to work. Yeah, a kind and then, of structure. Yeah, right? So you go, okay, I need that. But then what is all this other stuff that I think I need, but I don't really need for sure? Yeah. And that's when you can start abandoning the system a little bit because you can go, well, you know, like every car doesn't have four doors. Some have two. Maybe some have one, you know. Um, maybe yeah. not everybody in a car needs to sit side by side. Maybe someone sits behind the person. You, But you can start to rearrange the rules. Yeah. Right? It's just... but. But you kind of have to go, okay, what do I need for sure? Yeah. And what's up for like debate? What's up for like flexibility or room here? Yeah. It's yeah. not like, cause if someone had just said like, no, like a, a car is just, is uh, four wheels, four doors, you know, like in, <laughs> yeah. and, and whatever, if, if then it would be pretty boring, but obviously we have a wide variety of different, different cars and they all are function on the same kind of premises but they all do so in a different way. Right. You know, they all express themselves in a different kind of way. If you want to look at it in that kind of viewpoint. Well, in different cars, you know, I mean, I used to actually want to get into uh, automotive engineering and, and all of that. That was an interest of mine early on, um, that and architecture. But different vehicles do different things. Mm-hmm. Some vehicles are designed to carry a family some are designed to speed down a track as fast as humanly possible yeah you know or physically possible i should say um you know it's different things are doing things for different reasons i think another part of the system you need to understand is like what are you trying to do what is your purpose what is your intent Mm -hmm. because you know you could build two cars that could be entirely different. They do the same thing, but you know, some people might go, Oh, the, the Lamborghini or the McLaren or the Ferrari is the better car. Well, is it look, I have, uh, I have three kids. I don't, but let's say I have three kids and a wife, you know, or a husband and I need to get all of us to the game. A Lambo (laughs) is not what you need. It seats too. And you know what? Also the maintenance on the oil and all this other stuff that come with it you know, all the high maintenance issues of a, of a sports car. Mm-hmm. Right. So the thing is, is that better, worse, it, it, it really comes down to intent. And I mm. think that's another really important thing for artists is like, what are you trying to do with your art? You know, like if you're, if, if, if you're saying, if your artistry is in the realm of say auto mechanics and, and making a car, auto creation, whatever it's called. Um, if you're, if you're in that realm, the, the creation that you're making has a service. It has a point. It has mm-hmm. a purpose. And so, you know, I think every like actor, every writer, every filmmaker, every painter, every musician and so forth, 
we bring an intent to our work. Yeah. And your intent is going to greatly inform your creation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you don't have to have the same intent as other people. Your intent might be to do something different. I mean, man, like auto, like this whole auto creation thing is such a fascinating thing to me. I mean, I would love to be a part of it. I just don't know if I'm willing to do the science to study it, you know, but they built like a 3d car, 3d sports car, you know, um, over in Montreal, they created a car that was designed literally around the driver's seat. They were like, I want to give the driver it's a driver centered car. It was made in Montreal, Canada. Right. So interesting. But it's one of one of a kind car that they built the car around how the driver sits, like which is so interesting because the intent created a certain type of automobile, right? Right. So the thing is, is that in some ways, the focus where you put your attention, where you put your values, that's going to inform the system because the car it's still a car. But the system of the car, the way the car was yeah. built, was built largely based on a different intent. And I think that is interesting. Like for the car that was built with 3D printing, it was all about making it light, mm-hmm. you know, and it was all about can we print all these parts on a, on a machine? Because really the real design of the car was um, they discovered that the actual development of a car from an industrial point of view was like actually worse than driving like that's the worst part is actually the building of the car. Mm. So the the guy who created this wanted to cr- create a system to create a car that actually doesn't kill the environment just in creating the car. Hmm. So that's why in that and so a lot of people go, "Oh, you want to create a 3D car because it'd be cool to create a 3D car." Actually, the intent was an environmental intent. Right. That's how it came to be. So it's it's very interesting like 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 we don't always understand how things are are born but the artist like he's an artist because he was he worked in this and he looked and said i want to create a car that doesn't destroy the environment Mm -hmm. just by being built and then he created a supercar that was 3d printed but often people think he created a 3d car because he thought that would be cool that wasn't actually the main reason. Yeah. The main reason was because he thought it would be more environmentally sound to do it. You know, sometimes these things come out of these what ifs. Right. Again, there's this, there's a, an imagination component to this. It's like, well, what if we wanted to do this? What if we want to create something like this? And sometimes that idea, I mean, it's like, well the way that we currently do things doesn't facilitate that it's it's the way that we currently do things normally does not does not necessarily promote or or aid in that in that end and so then what happens is you have to start thinking of okay so what would it take to do something like this how would we have to reapproach this? And in that, that, that's how entire systems get thrown out at times. Totally. You know, it's not, yeah. sometimes it's not even just a case of systems being um, an evolution or a revolution of a system. It's about a completely new thing. It's just like something comes along that completely blows everything away mm-hmm. that's come out before. Okay, we're completely rethinking everything that we thought about 
how we did something for it. And every now and then that happens. Yeah, totally. And, it's, and, and we need that. And totally. it doesn't come from following the systems the way that they've already been established. I think also, you know, the other thing to keep in mind, if you end up kind of discovering or happening upon a new system, it's probably not, at least from my understanding and, and you know, from my observation, and, and I guess somewhat from my own life experience, it's usually not because you're trying to make a new system. It's because yeah. y- you see a problem with the current system and you try to solve that. And through solving that, you realize there's another way. Um, or not even necessarily that there's a problem with the system, but there's just a problem that you're trying to solve that the system is is incapable of addressing. Right. And so then you become aware of a problem in the system. Right. You know, so sometimes the challenge that you're facing or, or the area that you want to go to is just what you're trying to, to solve just is not cannot be answered within the current structures. Right. And so you need to find a new way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I think, um, you know, different things can be done in different ways. Like, you know, to go back to this, um, just the automotive uh, development, you know, for, for a common economy car, you put it on an assembly line and you put parts on an assembly line and, and there are people who work in certain sections of that vehicle and they put together or machines will put together that section of the car and it will be done over and over and over again mm-hmm. because they need to be mass produced. But when you look at a supercar, um, those are not designed that way. They're actually yeah. built by hand um, with a select number of people and they're only built in a select number as well. A very Usually in the hundreds, not yeah. in the thousands, tens of thousands or potentially millions. Yeah. So you know, um, the point I think is to remember that the way in which one thing is done is not necessarily the way in which another is done. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think when it comes to systems too, is that sometimes you might need to abandon a system for another system entirely, Yeah. but it's already a system. It's just that the system you're working with doesn't work for what you're trying to do. Like if you were building let's just say you've been building economy cars your whole life and you've mastered that system. And then you're like, I want to build a supercar. Parallel this to your art. You're going to need to build your supercar by hand. Your, Mm -hmm. your manufacturing of doing what you're doing through the economy system is just not going to have the care to detail that a supercar requires. Yeah. And so like, you know, and here's the other thing. One of the things that I, I I was doing, like, I just do weird little research on things, I guess, because I'm a writer and I'm always looking into shit. <laughs> but like, one of the things that I realized, and I just realized this, it's so obvious, but I just realized it. When they make a supercar, they intend to sell every single one. Yeah. There is not one single one that gets left for next year. Every single one that gets made is going to be bought by a specific buyer. And if if they don't sell 100% of them, then that is a failed supercar in a lot of ways mm. because the design is to sell like they just they made a Porsche uh, for example 3 years ago. It was a battery/ slash, um, 
you know, hybrid hybrid type thing. 998 of them, every single one was sold. And once they're sold, the only way to get one is to buy it from someone who already bought it. That's right. it. But when you talk about an economy car, like a Honda Civic or something like that, those, they're made to sell most of them. <laughs> yeah. But you might have Honda Civics that don't get sold. And then what ends up happening is that one's just on the lot. And then it just kind of gets put into next year. And then someone buys it on the the next year down. Yeah. Lower price sale because the new model of the new year has come out. Right. But it's just a different way in which things are done. Right. So, I mean, I think like you can look at this as your art. You can kind of go like, look, if I'm a screenwriter, I'm writing a movie of the week. It's a different thing than if you're writing a feature film. Mm hmm. And you need to keep that in mind, just like if you're writing a play or whatever. And I think this is important, you know, like for the actors out there, if you're a working actor, you know, your working acting might not be the same as your leading star of a movie or leading star of a television series. And that's okay. But you need to kind of look at this a little bit, you know, and consider that, um, you might need to reframe your mind to be able to do what you need to do. Mm. And that might mean requiring abandoning what you think, you know, to try out something else or look into something else. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, wrap this, this guy up here. Let's do it. Um, so we are drinking, uh, a drink, a drink and a drink, We're drinking a drink. It's not an ad, but we have a beer on the podcast and it spurs on conversation. This is a nice 6.3 alcohol percentage, by the way. This is a red Ooh. truck, red truck beer. Yeah. It's called Field Trip Northwest IPA. And um, as Evan has said many times before, he likes red trucks beers. Every other beer he likes more than the lager. <laughs> Which is their, like, but their lagers, The lagers are most popular. Yeah. So what do you think of this one? It's good. It's, um, I've been enjoying it. No complaints there. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's solid. It's, it's not my, my absolute favorite, um, IPA that I've had. I feel like there's a number of IPAs I would put ahead of this one, (laughs) but it's, it's definitely a drinkable. I don't know if I could do more than one. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. 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 This is a one and done affair in, in a single sitting, as they say in the beer community, it's not particularly sessionable. <laughs> I, you know, in my I, opinion. Yeah. I hear you. I, I don't mind it. I, I, I think I could do two or three of these in a, in a sit. All right. Yeah. Surprisingly, it, considering that I started, when we started recording podcasts, I wasn't really even into IPAs. In fact, I didn't even really like them. The fact that I could drink this a few times yeah. is pretty good. That's So you've done all right for me, Red um, Red Truck. But um, yeah, no, it's good. I mean, it, it's solid. It's like I say, yeah. it's solid. I mean, I don't think it's the best IPA I've had either. But as far as like just having a beer, having an IPA, uh, I'm pretty happy with it. It'll you know do I mean? the job. It does the job. Yeah. Um, all right. So... We talked about a bunch of stuff. The, 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 <laughs> the point of this, this conversation was, when is it time to abandon the system? And then what does that look like? You know, is it just tweaking the system? Is it, is it going be where the system stops, you carry on? Is it adopting an entirely new system because the one you're working with isn't working? 
you know, these are the, these are the things you're going to have to answer. This is the artistry of it. Yeah. And I think artistry is one of those things where, you know, people shy away from it because artistry doesn't, it's not about offering certainty. Mm-hmm. It's more about offering curiosity. It's more about offering wonder. It's options. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's not so much about getting to the solution, but it's offering a solution, yeah. a potential solution at best a lot of the time. And so I think for those of you who are artists, it's like, you know, this is trial and error. Yeah. And it's going to be forever. There's never going to be a part. It ceases to be art when trial and error gets removed from it. Yeah. You know, and, and we always want to have a little trial and error. If things ever get to the point where it's like, you just do this and this is it. Life's going to get really, really fucking boring. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So I, I think the thing is, is like, embrace the fact of the unknown, embrace the curiosity, embrace the wonder and the discovery. This is a part of the game. You know, this is what's going to actually allow you to surface and kind of bring yourself to to something. Because if it is just a system, then you might as well just be a robot. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you brought up a really terrific word. I love that you brought up wonder in this whole thing. You know, it's like the system brings the function, but you bring the wonder. I think that that's kind of the relationship that happens there. And, and again, I want to reiterate that a good system allows room for that. A good system is not trying to dictate certainties. A good system is there to, to just, again, establish that foundation, that platform. It's like, all right, here, it's like, we have this. Now, what are you going to do? Now, what do you do? Is it you're going to throw, okay, yeah, sure. We're going to throw away that part of it. You know, a good system is in many ways, a engaged in, in its own destruction Mm. (laughs) to a degree. It's willing to do that. It's willing to bend. It's willing to, to reshape itself and make, and make changes and alterations and compromises because a good system uh, knows that that's needed to, to evolve in order for it to grow in order for, the next great thing to happen. And, and then for you as, as an individual, as a, as a creative, you know, it's, it's how you start to find your expression. It's how you start to bring something that hasn't been seen before. Again, you bring the wonder component of it and the system cannot give that to you. The Mm. system does not provide the wonder it's only there. It's a support role, really, is all it is. Our systems are just support roles. Mm-hmm. And they're made up of not certainties, but tendencies. Things that are, it's like, well, usually, if you do things like this, you'll kind of get this something that functions in this way. Mm-hmm. But not always. So that's where we come in. That's where our presence, our own intuition, our own wisdom, our own experience factors into this. And we need to give that validity in order for the fullness of, of our creation to, to be realized. I'll say this at the end. I, I, I think that with a system, your, your job, if you want to walk the way of the artist, is... Not to take the system to where it's already been, but to take it beyond where it's 
where it's been. It's to mm-hmm. move forward. And there's um, a few historic people, which I think every artist should research in depth and start to understand them. Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. Mm. Socrates created the Socratic method, which he died for, by the way. (laughs) He was the first, one of the first major people in history who said, what if we critically think about things and ask questions instead of assume we know knowledge? And so he would go to the most knowledgeable people in the world around in his environment and he would ask them questions and he would literally prove to them that they didn't know what they thought they knew. Yeah. And he started to prove through questioning that in some ways the most intelligent people were people like the cooks and the craftsmen and the blacksmiths and people like Mm -hmm. that because they actually had a craft that they could literally know. But Mm -hmm. a lot of the people who were considered the great thinkers were proven that their knowledge was bullshit because he would ask questions, which unraveled that. Then Plato came along, which Socrates mentored, by the way. But Plato had differing views than Socrates. Mm -hmm. And Plato started to put together systems. You know, he put together these things about like, this is how story works. This is the blah, blah, blah. Yeah. As well as basically the foundation for democracy. Right. (laughs) Well, then Aristotle came along after Plato, which was essentially Plato's protege. And Aristotle had differing views. Just these are three names in a very short period of time that came back to back and all created monumentally important elements to our systems. Yeah. And they all disagreed with each other a little bit and took the system further. So Plato took the Socratic method, went further, started to create a system of linkage and platonic structures. Exactly. (laughs) And then Aristotle took that and went further. And so look, you're an artist. If you, if you want to be in the realm of pushing things and evolving things, you, you learn the system. It's brilliant. It works. It might be amazing, mm-hmm. but don't underestimate the fact that you might bring something absolutely more amazing and incredible to something already amazing. But if you limit yourself at the system, you say, oh, Socratic method. That's it. That's all we need. Then you yeah. stop. You know, Plato wasn't necessarily correct in some of the things he put together. Like he wasn't complete. I wouldn't, I'm not going to say correct, but he wasn't complete, but he, he gave us something fantastic. So did Socrates. Aristotle gave us something Mm -hmm. great. He wasn't complete. No one's complete. The thing is, but we keep bringing something incredible, you know, and, and these names, they're known and they stand out because these people in history were so bold that they were willing to trust their, like, I think it's an interesting time. I really wonder about that because there was a select group of people who were so like artistically profound Mm -hmm. and they trusted what they had to bring to the table was so relevant that they were willing, like Socrates died for that shit. Yeah. He, 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 his famous quote is like, um, what is it? Something like, um, a unexamined life is not worth living, Mm. you know? And he died. He would rather die than, than, than say, take back all the stuff that he put forth. And he did, he died for it. Yeah. He died for his principles. You know? And now look, 
we don't need to get into who he was as a person and whatever he did in his life. It probably was fucked up. I don't know. I've heard some terrible stuff about that. Yeah. That's not the point. The point is, is that we're talking about artistry. We're talking about new. We're talking about originality, creative, bringing your voice forward. You know, um, you know, many artists have brought original work forward and have been fucked up people. So that's on you. You're going to have to figure that out for yourself. And I don't think you need to be a fucked up person to bring something new. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think sometimes people, they have personal issues they have to work out. But, you know, aside from all that, be willing to go and, and bring your voice to the world and trust that you can take the system to a certain point and then further. That's what I would leave everyone with. Excellent. All right. I got nothing else, so <laughs> until keep, keep tuning in. Until next time, folks. Until next time. Thanks for listening to the show. If you got something out of this, if you feel it improved your life or your journey in any way, please take a moment to subscribe, leave a review, or share the episode. You can also support us on Patreon, where we have tons of great bonuses. You are the ones that make the show possible and help us to thrive. Thank you for joining us.